0: as we open up the scriptures, open our hearts to receive them. As we look upon these words on the page, open the eyes of our spiritual understanding, we pray. As we behold these eternal, glorious, sovereignly dictated, infallible truths, I pray that you would open our hearts to appreciate them, to love them, to retain them, and then to teach them to others. Transform us, we pray this day, by the proclamation of your holy word. Change us more into the image of our beloved and powerful Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Father, at your table, at the close of this service, when we partake in the representation of your very body and blood, today remind us of the great price, the precious blood, the broken body of our Savior, broken and shed for us, your people that you might ransom and redeem us, Lord, to give you praise now and forevermore. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. We have such a glorious opportunity today to open the scriptures and to behold our Lord Jesus Christ revealed in his word. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 13, and this will be... Likely the second to last message in our Hebrews series, which we have taken up on Communion Sunday. So pray for direction for our next book. I have a few ideas, but I'm not quite ready to announce what we'll take up next. But in July, we will be touching on Hebrews again, Lord willing, with an overview message. But today, we will seek to draw the applications as to leadership from Hebrews 13 that we see in these closing words by the author of this great epistle sermon to us, the church. Us, the church, as we read these words, even thousands of years after they were written, are certainly relevant for us today. I'll seek to make this point as we approach God's scriptures with a few applications to our modern context uh, and structure the message around four applications that the author gives the readers on how to interact in the Christian church with leadership as we are called to honor the Lord in that regard. The aim of this morning's message is to draw our attention to a truly Christian perspective on leadership, and specifically today, leadership within the church. To draw our attention to a truly Christian perspective. And when I say Christian perspective, I don't just mean Christian as like a sort of bumper sticker modifier, but Christian in the sense that the truths that are expounded in Hebrews 13, surround, they're centered upon, they're built upon Christ and his work that we just sang of on Calvary itself. The fact that he he suffered outside the camp and how that related to the Old Testament atonement rite and how he, in the great benediction of Hebrews, is extolled, is magnified as the very means by which the God of peace has reconciled us to him even as he demonstrated proof positive his power in raising Christ from the dead, and by shedding his blood, which is the price, the cost, and the effective means of the eternal covenant binding us in unity to our Lord. All these things are central, therefore, to the truths expound and the applications made for how we should live in light of the gospel with relationships inside the body of Christ. So with that introduction and your Bible open to Hebrews 13, would you stand with me once again for the reading of God's holy word today? Again, Hebrews 13, 7 through 25 is our text. Behold the infallible word of God as we read today. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for your heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The last few verses. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy, send your greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So to refresh your memory, in weeks past, we've taken in about three different sections, portions of this chapter, and focused upon them. The first is, how should we worship gratefully, having received a kingdom that cannot be shaken? Those phrases are taken from verse 28 of the previous chapter. The admonition is, in light of the glorious truth laid out in the book of Hebrews, we ought to offer to God acceptable worship, the author says, with reverence and awe. So verse, or chapter 13, verse 1 and following then opens with ways to reverence and, and with awe and reverence and gratefulness, worship the Lord in its practical things. Show brotherly love, show hospitality. Remember in doing so, uh, some have entertained angels unawares. Visit those maltreated in prison on account of the faith. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Don't let money rule you, worship the Lord with the practical areas of life, so on and so forth. The second section that we've considered at some length is this comparison between the day of atonement of old and Christ's work of fulfillment in the new. This is the outside the camp analogy and picture that the author draws to that which took place uh, when the sacrifices were made in the old covenant and that which Christ fulfilled in the new when he went outside the camp, and then there's the call to follow him. Therefore, uh, let us go, he says, to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The third section that we've covered so far is the great benediction, closing prayer of farewell. This great blessing at the close of the book, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, we talked about that being the proof of God's power to establish all that is promised in the book. We talked about the price, the blood of Jesus Christ shed to purchase for us our new life in him. We talked about the product of this is that we were equipped to do every good work and we talked about all this ought to resound in praise that Christ ought to be glorified forever and ever on account of these things. But there's one area of focus that we haven't touched as deeply on yet in this passage and it is with respect to leadership. There are four references. May I suggest in Hebrews thirteen of application, as it relates to our relationships, leadership, and uh, relationships and the like within the church. They are beginning. Uh, the the four references are beginning in verse seven. This charge: Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. The second reference is verse twelve or seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Third reference, the author, as an example of a leader, says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And finally, verse 24, there's the admonition, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy, send you greetings. So in the context of this glorious close and these references to Christ's work, And practical applications within the body of Christ, we have instructions on leadership. This is important for us. Think of these questions. What makes a great leader? Thousands of books, I'm sure, have been written on that topic. I remember when I was in college, uh, one of my textbooks was called Lincoln on Leadership or something. I remember a thing about the book except the title. Um, I don't know if I could recommend it or not, but it's one of those books among thousands that fill shelves, probably whole sections in bookstores, that explore the idea, the concept, the notion of leadership. Here's another question. Why are certain figures of historical importance in our uh, maybe the history of our nation or the world celebrated for their leadership? What makes a good leader? And what are some examples that we celebrate of good leadership through the course or what we think might be good leadership through the course of history? Here's the third question. What character traits and qualifications will we look for in our next political season as we consider candidates for our parties, and uh, to elect in offices in our land, and so forth? These are questions that we're very familiar with. Well, I submit to you that Hebrews 13 has some answers for what biblical qualifications for leadership look like, and they give us a direction, a truly Christian perspective on leadership in general. These are issues we'll explore today. I was listening recently to some podcasts, and I counted over the last year and a half actually four interviews with four different psychologists who were uh, asked about the fitness of our current president, his qualifications for serving relating to the way he's wired, his personality, his leadership styles, mental health, even those kinds of things. They're kind of interesting discussions. But the reason, there's a reason why they're so popular. It's because of the question of leadership. The, the last one I listened to, there was comparison and contrast, John, between President Donald Trump and Theodore Roosevelt of old. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt was celebrated in this individual's, the psychologist's opinion as a great leader. However, he said, you think uh, Trump might be a narcissist, you haven't seen nothing yet in, in le- until you look closely at Teddy Roosevelt's life. He had, he, in his words, the psychologist said he had truly a relational, malignant narcissism. What he meant is, uh, Theodore Roosevelt in some ways was so self-absorbed, had such a self-importance, a superiority complex, that it was very damaging to the relationships around him. And the psychologist says, however, that did not affect his, uh, obviously those things served him well in leadership. Well, that raises a question, is that true? Is it true that certain traits of self-absorption serve us well in leadership? Or could that be testimony to ideals of leadership that are misguided? Would the Bible second that psychologist's opinion? Hebrews 13 answers. Discussions like this, as common as they are, illustrate a preoccupation with the concept of leadership that is prevalent in our culture. Even in the confessing church, book titles all over the place are evidence to this. We're often, and sometimes they even indicate, in my judgment, an obsession with the notion of what it takes to be a good leader, what are marks of good leadership, and so on. These discussions are often marked, may I submit to you, by two sinful impulses manifesting themselves on either side of social hierarchy or social leadership relationships. Uh, Note these two prevalent sins that come up when we're discussing issues of authority. The first is pride. Pride is evidenced often among those who are seeking leadership positions. They might be seeking this position because of a need for self-validation, an identity search or complex, an ambition to be pursued at the expense of others. And when leadership is defined or pursued according to these terms, according to the sin of pride, it translates into tyranny, bad examples of leadership that subjugate those under them, abuse them, and it ends up being a poor example of what godly relationships ought to look like. The second sin that I, it strikes me as perhaps most prevalent, prevalently displayed in the context of, a, of relationships and authority is rebellion. This is kind of on the other side of the spectrum. This is evident among those uh, resenting submission to leadership without distinction. So regardless of whether leadership is qualified or not, a rebellious heart resents the fact that they must submit to any kind of leadership. And this attitude, this impulse, this sin results in lawlessness or antinomianism, that is a denial of law, order, structure, authority uh, in the first place. And these are the two sins I suggest that the Bible corrects and addresses by presenting a biblical structure, a biblical vision, for what true, what true Christian leadership looks like. So in light of all this, this only highlights these questions, our society's preoccupation and sins that are prevalent and come to the fore in light of hierarchical structures. All this only highlights, may I suggest, the importance of what the Scriptures reveal on leadership. The Bible addresses those in leadership and those under leadership with absolute authority. Only in the Scriptures do we have the ultimate standard of how we ought to order our affairs, how we ought to understand our roles and responsibilities, how we ought to delegate certain jurisdictions. Only in the Bible do we get absolute, perfect, authoritative answers on these things. It also makes clear that in nearly every station of life, the Scriptures tell us that we are called to be under authority and in authority simultaneously depending on our calling and duty in God's greater order of things. That is to say, if you especially if you are an adult in this room, you're probably called to be a leader over someone as well as certainly called to be in submission to leaders over you. So that just emphasizes the point of how important it is to understand our roles and responsibilities with respect to our call in this regard. For these reasons, it is appropriate that the author of Hebrews would close his sermon epistle with his instructions pertaining to leadership, and equally as appropriate for us, his readers, to take his instructions to heart." So with that introduction, let us consider his four application points this morning. There are four application points with respect to our leaders given to us in Hebrews 13. Very simply, number one, we are to remember them. Remember godly leaders. Number two, we are to obey them. Number three, we are to pray for them. And number four, we are to greet them. Remember, obey, pray, and greet. Let's look at our text more closely with these in mind. Hebrews 13.7, this injunction, this command directive is given by the author. Remember your leaders, he says, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Uh, That's a a saturated, vacuum-packed message for us. A great summary on leadership. We are to remember our leaders, and in so doing, note that he mentions leadership in word, leadership in deed, and leadership affirmed. Remember them. What does this mean? Well, if we look more closely at the context and the original language, the idea of remembrance in view here is that which would bear something in mind, would make mention of it frequently, and perhaps you could say it, summarize it this way, keep a legacy alive. Remember your leaders. He's speaking of those who came in the past and delivered the truth of God's word. Remember those, your heritage, the lineage of gospel proclamation in your experience as a church. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Are you familiar with a foundation? You know, the foundation for the preservation of the legacy of such and such president? I had a friend who worked at the Gerald Ford Museum. Sounds really exciting. He did uh, security there late at night. I'm not sure who would want to come in and steal anything from the Gerald Ford Museum. Nevertheless, it was a government job, so he was paid to do just that guard the premises. Well, that museum existed to guard something else. It was there to preserve the legacy of one of the presidents of our United States, and there is likely some nonprofit foundation dedicated to do just that. Why? Because somebody or a group of people thought that the memory, the importance, the significance, the influence of Gerald Ford is worth carrying on, telling others in our future. In this sense, the author of Hebrews is telling us that the church in part exists as an institution to preserve the legacy of the word of God delivered to us through the apostles and the prophets, and chiefly through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our foundations take their work very seriously. They carefully, precisely, and accurately seek to archive everything that individual has done and what they stood for. They're there to take the phone call when someone is writing a scholarly work and wants to cite that individual's contribution to any area of life and society. They take that work very seriously. And in this way, Or in this illustration, we see that we have a similar charge. We are to take the work of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the word of God very seriously so that when unbelievers ask for a reason for the hope within us, or they have a question or doing some research in their own spiritual quest, journey, they want to know what Christianity is all about, you as a faithful archivist have remembered the leaders that have gone before those who have rightly handled the word of truth. This goes all the way back, my suggestion that's brought us context to the authors of scripture themselves. Those who testify to you the truth of Jesus Christ. Remember them. Be an archivist of their work, if you will. Be someone who takes seriously their contribution. Bear it in mind. Keep the legacy alive. In this, we find in context here That leadership, according to scripture, is not a neutral term. Another way to say it, there is no such thing as a godly leader who is disconnected from the word of God. Now a thousand books, a million books might take issue with that. Oh no, no, there's great leaders all throughout all areas of life. Oh really great by whose definition? Which raises the question, what makes a leader a good one? Well, I've heard all kinds of definitions. I really hate this topic, to be honest with you, from the world's perspective. I love it from a scriptural perspective. But I think people get absolutely distracted and pulled into all kinds of convoluted thinking because of this obsession of what makes a good leader. You'll often hear, well, is there anyone following? If I turn around and see no one following, then I know my leadership skills need work. There may be some provisional truth to that. But consider Isaiah for a moment. Consider Jeremiah for a moment. Were they leaders? Absolutely. In fact, their work was stewarded by those who have treasured the scriptures all the way to our day. And they are among the leaders that we are to remember the spoken word of God. Yet both of them did not have many followers. They were called to proclaim the truth of the word of God, even if it cost them their influence with their neighbors. They were to proclaim the truth. So God told Isaiah, you will be a good leader in obedience to me when you proclaim the truth, regardless of uh, of the fact anyone is following you or not. Why? Because godly leadership is never disconnected from the word of God. It may be disconnected from a quote-unquote following, but it's never disconnected from the word of God. Those who spoke to the word of God are the leaders we, as his church, are called to remember. I used as a negative illustration recently a pastor who has sought to distance himself from what I, I think he considers embarrassing truths in the Old Testament. And in so doing, he has, uh, he has sought to uh, create a distance from the Word of God. And as much as the Old Testament is absolutely the Word of God, to keep it at arm's length, may I suggest, disqualifies you from leadership. I was discussing this with some pastor friends of mine, and they said, Ah, oh, that's just such a shame. I've appreciated his work on leadership in other areas. Well, that came to mind as I was studying this week, because our verse today makes clear that someone could write all the helpful books that you might think are. Uh, practical guides for leadership. But if that individual distances himself from the word of God, he is not a leader that falls into this category according to Hebrews 13, seven. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So first of all, leadership in word. The word of God and leadership go hand in hand. Secondly, leadership indeed. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Their deeds, their actions, the fruit of their leadership, would uh, show up in their life if they are legitimate. First Timothy speaks to this. We've been studying the pastoral epistles in our men's group study. If you want to turn there with me in First, this is First Timothy three. It's a great cross reference for this idea of the outcome of life with respect to the leadership call in the Church of Jesus Christ. Paul writes instructing his under-shepherd, if you will, the one that he is mentoring, his disciple, Timothy, he says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, great synonym for leader, is it not? He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be, and then we have a long list of qualifications, above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Goes on to uh, give more qualifications as well. But you'll notice nearly every one of these falls into the category of the outcome of his Way of life, so Paul echoes the author of the book of Hebrews when he has said in Hebrews thirteen seven. Remember those who not only spoke to you the word of God, but consider the outcome of their way of life, and then thirdly, imitate their faith. So again, in remembering leaders, keep this in mind: leadership and the word of God go hand in hand. Leadership is evidence, not just in words spoken but also in deeds done, the fruit of that which follows. How do you know if somebody truly believes something, truly has faith in something? It's more than just their confession. It's more than just their profession. It's their actions that actually build a life and apply the words that they say they truly affirm. And in this way, in judging fruit, we can have a far better handle on judging those who are qualified Uh, to be leaders, and also recognizing those who have contributed in significant ways in the past. Leadership in word, leadership in deed. And when we judge as much that these leaders have met the qualifications, we're called to imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This would be leadership affirmed. We note some highlighted examples in the context of the book of Hebrews of this very thing. In Hebrews 11, for instance, there's a long list of former leaders, former uh, among, of the saints among them in the covenant history of God's mighty work, whose works can be demonstrated or are demonstrated in Scripture and can be emulated as examples. For instance, Hebrews eleven four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Noah is another example. By faith, it says of him in verse 7, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So in the case of Noah, we have faith in word and faith in deed. He took seriously the word of God proclaimed the word of God to his neighbors, but also believed the word of God so thoroughly that he spent, we figure, some century plus of his life building, constructing an ark, even though his neighbors, I'm sure, thought he was foolish and the project would have seemed to be as absurd as anything you can imagine. However, the faith of Noah, in spite of this, was seen in word and deed as he lived accordingly. In the same way, Abraham, Hebrews 11.8, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place. He was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. In this verse, we see that Abraham was a leader. He's called a forefather in the faith, a patriarch, one who's gone before, one to be emulated, one whose faith ought to be imitated. But we also see that Abraham was himself under leadership, was he not? He obeyed the Lord over him, his Lord Jesus Christ, called him by his word to go forth from his comfortable place of residence and to go to a place that the Lord would show him in route. Says verse 10 of this place, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So again, in the context of Hebrews, those are just a few examples. And you could read more of leadership that is worth affirming by imitating their way of life. Let me note in passing, when we consider someone's faith, that faith is always justified by its object. Now, you'll often hear someone say of an unbeliever, someone very committed to their task or uh, their call, their cause, oh, I really admire their faith, you know, even though I disagree with what they're doing. Scripturally, just like leadership is not neutral, neither is faith. Faith is always justified by its object. In other words, a faith worth emulating is a faith In Jesus Christ, period. A faith worth taking seriously, a faith worth following, a faith worth celebrating is a faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. Neither faith nor leadership are some kind of neutral ideal. They are both justified by leadership toward what? Toward godliness. By faith in who? Faith in Jesus This is the lesson, and these and those who model such things are who we are called to remember. So that's application point one: remember them. Second application point in our text today is obey them. Uh, Notice verse seventeen of our leaders. Our author says, "Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give." an account. I would note that in each one of these injunctions or commands or instructions to take seriously Christian leadership, each one comes with an implicit qualification that it implies that certain qualifications make you suitable to be a godly leader. And verse 17 is no exception. You could say it this way, godly leaders are those who serve the sheep for their good, for their benefit. They do this in modeling our Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life as a ransom for many. They do so in modeling our Lord Jesus Christ, who, in spite of the fact that he created and maintained every atom of this material cosmos, stooped in his incarnation, and grabbed the dirty feet of his fickle disciples, who were with him at one moment, would deny him the next, who followed him with all their frailties and sins, and wash them. In these examples, Christ himself modeling leadership is our example, our ultimate picture. We see this in the context of Hebrews 13, in the context of the Gospels. Implicit qualification. Here's a, phrase, or here's a, a way you could perhaps restate this theological truth. The best spiritual interests of the flock are pursued and attended to by godly leaders. So biblical godly leaders, true Christian leadership, pursue the best interests of their flock. And as such, biblical submission to leadership within the church is a willing and grateful compliance with accountable soul stewardship. In other words, we help our leaders account for our souls when we serve under them with a heart of obedience and submission. We're in this together. Godly leaders, we are to obey them, number one, for our own sake. You are to obey your godly leaders for your own sake. Notice, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. There's a connection to obedience to godly leadership and the state of your soul's very health. My kids are really into college stories right now, uh, my college stories in particular, um, which makes me nervous. My dad's here, and the reason I have so many college stories is because I was very into my dad's college stories when I was young. And uh, so I probably, well, there's no doubt I took too many chances. Let me use myself as a negative illustration. One day we were south of Dallas, a group of buddies, and myself and I, and we set up camp at Lake Whitney. There's cliffs there. If I'm getting this, this wrong, I um, can correct the geography later. But as I recall, these cliffs range from like 30 feet to 80 feet. And of course, the 80 feet ones were the ones off limits that you had to sneak and When no one was looking, go and jump off them and dare each other. And you know, you're know, you flying through the air for like a full second and a half before your body smashes in the water. If you hit it wrong, obviously it can be very dangerous. One night we were at Lake Whitney. It was getting late and our plan was to camp there. So we snuck past some signs and stuff that we failed to read very carefully. We went off onto these rocks and got way out overlooking some of the highest cliffs on Lake Whitney and set up our fire and whatnot and slept soundly under the stars. The next day, we wake up, get all our stuff together. We look to see if the coast is clear. We weren't worried about the danger of these cliffs. We were worried about getting caught. That was the only thing we were afraid of. I remember looking back as we were packing up, and actually reading the fine print on the sign. And it said something like, for your own uh, safety, please regard the following. And then it said a year ago, or I can't remember what it, uh, the, word, the word was, that the, these cliffs were actually unsafe and unstable. And a year ago, people had been out on one of them and someone had actually died when a whole ledge of rock gave way and careen avalanche style 80-some feet down into this ravine. Those signs were posted for our benefit, but we, like rebellious college student students, disregarded them. The people there exercising this leadership were doing it in our interest, but because we didn't have regard for those signs, we were putting ourselves at risk. This is an illustration of godly leadership. Godly leadership doesn't exist to advance the cause of the leader. It doesn't serve to make him feel better about himself or accomplish a particular goal. Godly leadership serves the benefit of those under the leader. They are to submit to that leadership because it is in their interest to do so. Because godly leaders, just like Christ, in the best case scenario, are keeping watch over their souls. We are to obey godly leaders for our own sake. But secondly, this verse goes on to say, we are to obey godly leaders for their sake. That's interesting. Reading again. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And notice this next phrase, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage for you. When you read Paul, You hear the groanings of one who had laid down his life for the church, put himself at great risk that he might steward well the souls of those he was called to reach. And we find, and especially in 2 Corinthians, what kept Paul up late at night fretting with anxiety, crying out in prayer, was not so much the beatings, the imprisonment, the danger, the peril, the sword, the robberies, the condemnation by pagan governments, What kept him awake at night was his concern for the health and the well-being of the church. If you wanted to make Paul happy, if you wanted to make his day and give him joy, you could write him a letter sending him testimony that that the church of Corinth was taking seriously the word of God, was following in the precepts of the apostles and prophets of old and his instructions as the gospel and his instruction as the gospel had been delivered to him this would lift Paul's spirits and give him joy why because he took seriously the cause of watching over the souls of the church godly leaders do this we can help them we can help them to answer to the lord to bear the weight of accountability for our souls when we follow the instructions of the word of god so that when we look upon our lives we can commend ourselves to our leaders as those who are joyfully following conforming changing repenting and living out the gospel and so this reduces the groaning for answering for those who are under the charge of leaders so we are to obey them for our own sake and for their sake they will answer to god for the care of the sheep entrusted to them and uh and we ought to therefore follow in such a way as to ensure them that this will not be, not be a dreadful proposition as far as it depends on us. And this, of course, we find in the greater context is mutually edifying. It's for in our best interest, in the best interest of our leaders, and in this way, in godly leadership, and in the relationships within the church of Jesus Christ, is not an us versus them. It's not a relationship, in its best expression, built on tension. Instead, it is one that creates a sort of synergy, a mutual understanding, and a great orderly progress, inertia, and momentum to advance the kingdom of God. And so this is the second application point. Application point three. Since this call is so serious, as we have seen We need to pray for our leaders. Verse 18, the author of Hebrews says, As a leader himself, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. When I really think about the circumstances that were likely behind this appeal, please pray for me. It brings, it almost gets me choked up a little bit because I sense some humanity, some anguish, some longing, some deep desire, some compassion, some love, an incredible amount of sacrificial service on account for the deep abiding care that the author of Hebrews has for this church. Pray for me. And what's his number one request? That I can see you again soon. That we could be reunited You know, today that prayer can be answered by stepping onto a plane. but At the time this book was written, that prayer had to be answered by ship and travel and foot and donkey and long journeys and danger, perilous perilous passage from one country to the next. And so it took great effort and therefore was a great uh, pressing prayer request, request that the church would pray. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you. So in this request for prayer again there's an implicit qualification, pray for who? What leaders are we to affirm in prayer? Pray for them that their ministries would abound, that they would get exact, you know that their goals would be met in their ministry and so forth. You know not so much for Jesse Duplantis who I found out this week is uh, seeking to raise 64 million dollars for his fifth private jet. That's kind of an absurd example of somebody that falls out of the category of what we see here, but there are those that we should pray that their ministry would succeed in advance and be funded and be assured they are the ones who have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Not preaching the things that etching ears want to hear, not finding a way to baptize the, the lusts that are defined by the culture, not the desires of the heart that is bent toward godliness. Not those. No, for them, we should pray that God's judgment would come, either repentance or that he would cut them off because they do a great disservice to advance in the kingdom of God. But instead, pray for those faithful bearers of the truth of Jesus Christ who sacrificially desire to act honorably in all things and who seek to keep their consciences clear, not to exploit those under them, but at the expense of their own well-being, seek to lay down their lives to serve the Lord in godliness. Not hirelings, but real shepherds. These are the ones we are to pray for. And then secondly, what are we to pray for? Pray for the communion of the church, the unity. And this illustrates to us how valuable it was to the author that the assembly of the beloved would include all of the believers that were available to gather. And he wishes that he were available to join them. Hebrews 10.25. He had said in another place, Verse 24, let us, now, now, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. His exhortation, all who are able, join together, assemble, join in communion, unity, friendship, fellowship around the Lord's table, around worship, and comparing notes from, from your life of pursuing the Lord last week. And this is what we do in this place, is it not, weekly? The prayer request that the author of Hebrews uh, urges this church to pray for is that this would happen and that he might join them. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Remember them, obey them, pray for them, and finally greet them. In closing, we see the final admonition toward our leaders. Hebrews 13, we'll read 22 through the end of the book. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Again, there's this desire for communion, for unity, for the church to be gathered, and for precious saints to be, uh, to be present. In verse 24, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy, send your greetings. Grace be with all of you. And thus the book closes. So greetings in the following categories. They are to greet their leaders. They are to greet all the saints. And greetings are to be received from the church in Italy. What does this presume? These instructions in closing of this book presumes mutual friendship, the joy of fellowship, an appreciation, a heart, a concern and a love for the universal truth. Don't forget that there's whole bodies of Christ that are praying for you and your trial in Italy. Don't forget that when you gather around the Lord's table, you gather, as it were, with congregations celebrating the work of Jesus Christ all over this globe. Some meet in secret because they cannot do so openly for fear of retribution from the government. Some have passed on and have joined that great hall of faith in Hebrews 11, and we will be rejoined with them. We're joined to them in the future at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And these involve people in all stations, and all callings, in particular, giftings. All members of the body of Christ. Those who are um, uh, members, those who are called to lead, those who serve in all different kinds of ways. So we pray accordingly. A great example of this that we have uh, sought to lift up as a prayer request of late is the Cressman family. Isaiah, Cressman, 15 years old, came down, with an intense case of malaria, as you probably know if you've been following the story. Um, praise the Lord. The latest report is that his body is, is returning to full functional health. His brain scan is 100%, so the disease has not infected his mental uh, capacity. And we're just praying now that his kid, kidneys would kick into gear, but he's taking steps and he's walking. Now, As you're hearing this message, I'm sure joy is filling your heart. According to 2 Corinthians 1.11, there's a reason for that. One of the reasons, the depth of joy you feel at this good report is because you have been praying. It's because you are aware of members of the body of Christ all the way over in Malawi in South Africa. Members that through Jesus Christ, we are connected to. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul instructs the church, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Joining our hearts, our desires, and our prayers together with the greater body of Christ ties us to those answers of prayers, answers to the prayers when they come. So we share in the joy of the Christmins to see their young Isaiah doing well, healthy, and recovering from his bout with malaria. That's one example of an application of the closing admonition of Hebrews 13. To greet your leaders, greet the saints, and receive greetings from the greater church. As we transition to communion, let me point out once again that these instructions, these application points, remember, obey, pray, greet, they come in the context of the greatest leadership example that we could possibly imagine, surpassed by none, infinitely surpassing all. And this is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Consider again the benediction of Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All of these practical applications are to be done so in the light of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, our sovereign, our king, the ultimate leader, the one who is the preeminent example and, uh, and beacon, standard of all true Christian leadership. Of this Jesus, we read in Hebrews thirteen twenty, that he is not just Lord, but he is the great shepherd of the sheep, two fruitful word studies, you could do at your own time. One, the term leader, used three times at least in this, pa- in this uh, chapter. And the second, the term shepherd, which is, I think, in Hebrews a unique mention, shepherd and leader. If you look at the Greek, the term leader refers, it's, from, it's the same word from which we get hegemony, uh, practical leadership, the functional power, the hierarchical element, authority, generally speaking but more particularly, the word shepherd. This qualifies the kind of leadership. It's not just a pragmatic, functional power exercise of authority. It's not just means to an ends. It's a kind of leadership that is in view as we read these admonitions. It's the leadership of a great shepherd, our Lord Jesus, over his dependent flock, his sheep. And the picture of the Lord as our shepherd is one that Psalm 23 I'm sure it comes immediately to your mind. It's such a familiar text, illustrates in beauty and detail. Because Jesus Christ, our Lord, is our shepherd, we shall not want, meaning he provides. He leads us, comforts, guides, supplies, protects, even through the valley of the shadow of death. And when it sometimes requires a rod and a staff, though they may feel uncomfortable at the time, we know he has our best interests in heart at heart. This is the call. This is the example of the great shepherd. And in the picture of Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate example of biblical leadership. We see uh, this metaphorically illustrating, this idea of shepherd, the ecclesiastical office, where the biblical character and qualities of leadership are pictured in that role of shepherd. The central and contextual emphasis of Hebrews leadership exhortations, therefore, is highlighted by this great closing benediction of the book. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, the way he served his people was to not only lead God and protect them, but to lay down his life. To go outside the camp, to suffer outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And notice the application and the charge, verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. He is our leader in laying down his life. And brothers and sisters in Christ, at the Lord's table before us, we have evidence of the shepherding work, the glorious leadership of Jesus Christ, his amazing accomplishments of Cal- on Calvary pictured before us. We have proved symbolically before us in these elements of his broken, blood, broken body, of his shed blood. And when we remember at his table today the significance of these elements, we remember that because Christ was the perfect leader and the perfect shepherd of us, his sheep, he secured for us eternal redemption. Entrance into the covenant by his spilled blood. He secured for us a cleansing from our sins in shedding his blood. He secured for us entrance into glory through his broken body. He secured for us in his intercession ever presently before the father, the assurance that we are in God's favor both now and forevermore. Let us remember these things at the Lord's table today. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the mighty example of Jesus Christ our Lord, who laid his life down as a sacrifice for us, his sheep. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of these things in their depth, their detail, their power, their glory, as we partake at your table this day. Bless each one, Lord, as they approach and write upon the tables of their heart the meaning of your glorious gospel. And may you equip them, Lord, through this message and this meal to go beyond this place and to live the truth of Jesus Christ, their Lord, to a world that is lost and dying. In the darkness of our culture, may we shine bright as lights, following Lord Jesus, the example of Christ, and those who followed Him to proclaim that there is hope in Christ alone. In His name we pray, amen.